Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 202. Uh, We have Dr. Michael Masters back on the show, and we're going to be discussing uh, some of his book, Identified Flying Objects, which we've had him on before to discuss. So we'll just call this part two. Um, And we'll also discuss some of the new stuff he's got going on, uh, as well as some of the most recent uh, UAP UFO news. So uh, super excited about this. Before we get started, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. Uh, we are going to do one uh, with uh, Michael here at the end, so stay tuned for that, especially if you're a Patreon member. And uh, one more thing, head on over to indrasweb.org. This is the social media platform we created to connect open minds, so whether you're talking about these topics or anything kind of related in the metaphysics and metaphysical realm. It's the perfect place to theorize, you know, speculate and hypothesize. So head on over there and set up a profile. Uh, and without further ado, welcome back on the show, Michael. Hey, thanks. It's good to be back with you guys. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. We were just talking last night on our 200th episode, how uh, it's been about a hundred episodes, so maybe we'll get you on every hundred episodes or so. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Keep it a regularly occurring thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the last time we we had you on, we talked a lot about like time dilation and time and our perception of time and uh, in correlation to this uh, external, you know, time space, if you want to call it, uh, type thing and the difference between those. I think we also discussed you know, more like the gray archetypes and that kind of stuff. But this is all based on your book. Uh, identified flying objects. So why don't you just give maybe somebody that's listening that's new uh, just a little bit of a brief summary of your book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even those that heard us 100 episodes ago probably don't (laughs) remember the specifics. So uh, yeah, it's just a a different take on the whole ET vibe. Um, Argues that instead of them being from a different planet, that they're actually us from the future, and this idea has been kicked around for some 30, 40 years, I guess, um, possibly as many as 70 or 80, if you believe some of the reports of past generals and uh, military personnel who uh, stated that the Roswell crash was a time machine. Um, but yeah, it's just the simple idea that our past evolutionary characteristics are trends that have brought us from a very primitive hominin or chimpanzee-like form to today, where we have bigger, rounder heads, smaller faces, less hair, uh, more dexterous fingers. If all of those things continue into the future, we're very likely to resemble the beings that are described in so many instances of close encounters and uh, especially abduction reports where people have a very intimate experience with these individuals. The majority of them are described as human, uh, human-like, humanoid. They're all bipedal in every instance. So that being the trait that defines humans sort of indicates that we share some phylogenetic relationship or should at least consider that we're related to them somehow. And since they are more advanced than us, it indicates that they came either from our future or a different timeline, a different dimension, if you will, 
uh, but one that's obviously farther ahead than us in time and technological advancement. So just kind of ties together the past, present, and this perceived future, which if these are beings from our future, then we have something to hold on to. It's not just speculating. We could actually see these things as the end result or at least a snapshot in time based on these past trends. So it's a multidisciplinary approach, mostly looks at this from an anthropological standpoint, but also ties in astrobiology, astronomy, and physics to make a case for this time travel model. Mm. Yeah, no, I definitely uh, like that approach. And it's obviously something I think a lot of people that are into this topic, I'm sure have thought about or think about from time to time. Yeah, it was crazy after publishing the book, just how many people came out and said, oh my God, you know, I've thought this for so long and it's so great to to hear this, to read this, to see this. Um, I think it's, and it's, it's definitely gaining traction too. I hear somebody on the Today Show just the other day mentioned it as their mm-hmm. favorite theory. Now, in, in, to point out, you are an academic, you're a professor of uh, biological anthropology at Montana Tech. Um, so you kind of you know, you're putting yourself out there because there's not a lot of academics that would do that. Let's just be honest about yeah. that. So, uh, taking you know, taking into that you know into account, do you when you look at like all the stuff that's going on in the news and everything, how are, how are you thinking about all this like buzz around the UAP and the UFO and all the Navy stuff and all the military accounts? Are you still on the same page with you know your book, or have you thought about it differently in any way? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, I've always referred to this as an evolving project. I don't claim to have the answers, just trying to put forth a model that seems to make sense in the context of this phenomenon. Um, and yeah, and reflecting on the book over the last couple of years, it's been just over two years since I published it. Um, re- really, it's been uh, adding to it in a number of ways, like having conversations with people, sometimes people who claim to be uh, high up in prominent research facilities or ex-government who have reached out to me and expressed things, told me things, and obviously I can't vouch for their credentials. Um, I don't really have a way of checking to see if they are who they say they are, but they've told me things that I overlooked that made a lot of sense that have helped sort of move this forward and add more legitimacy to the conversation, I think. Um, But no, really since 2017 when that first New York New York Times article came out I was getting close to being done with the book I was sending it off to my beta readers and uh, some early editing and uh, you know the, a year or so before that I was toying around with the idea of publishing under a pseudonym but decided that I just kind of have to own it I've got to get out there and do it and stand behind my work even if it means I get some backlash from my academic peers or my institution or the UFO community, as it turns out, um, it's still worth doing. And, I, and I'm glad I did. And especially now that even more is coming out and that UFOs are real now. Uh, <laughs> go figure. I couldn't have predicted yeah. that in 2019. But yeah, I mean, it's it's happening full on. So it's it's great to be a part of it. And, you know, it, it was nice to doing it before all of this. So it, I did have that aspect of you know, sticking my head out a little bit and challenging the system and challenging academia. And we should all be doing that. It's our job as scientists to be asking questions. And the the reason tenure exists in the first place is so that we don't have to fear retribution from any of our colleagues or institutions, um, because that's the only way to move 
the conversation forward and to move our knowledge as a species forward. So I definitely utilized uh, my tenure. I was full professor by the time I published this book. I think I just got promoted a few months before that. Um, so I got to the end of my promotional career. I was tenured full professor. I didn't have to worry about not getting promoted or someone, you know, demoting me or mm-hmm. trying to kick me out because of what I was writing about. But it's actually been the opposite. I've had a tremendous amount of support from my institution. Um, my colleagues, my peers, when I did a book release party, I'd say half of them had masters or PhDs who came out to support what I was doing. So it's been really good to see. And, and hopefully it's like that for other people too. I think it'll still be some time before the stigma wanes enough that everybody can jump in to the deep end of the pool. But for the most part, from my experience, at least coming from a, a well-renowned science and engineering school, um, it's, it's been very positive. And I think the, the tides are turning. So hopefully that continues. Yeah, awesome. uh, for sure. Um, for me, it's like, you know, we've talked a lot about UFOs and UAP since kind of like the beginning of doing this podcast over three and a half years ago. Um, yeah. And to watch it kind of evolve and look at UFO Twitter, I'm kind of torn because <clears throat> on one end, I think that what what's going on in UFO Twitter, this activism to, you know, have the government release more and the, the pressure to put on, uh, you know, on politicians and, um, you know, the news, you know, the, the media and everything. Uh, is kind of interesting. And I think that if there is something that they do have more information, data or whatever, that would make the picture clear. I think that maybe this is our best shot right now with what's going on, the momentum and the push and everything like that. On the other end, I see a lot of like pure speculation and a lot of just grasping at straws and just not really not that you have to take the scientific approach or method to these things fully, but I just feel like philosophically it just seems a little forced. So I'm kind of torn where I see the benefit and this might be our only chance, but at the same time, I think we should be careful about mythologizing some of the aspects of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And you know, really we have no control over it. We're getting what they give us and we're going to argue about it regardless um, and, and it's always been like that, at least from my experience in the UFO community, I've only been a part of it for two and a half years or so, but, um, it, yeah, it seems like everybody has a stance and a lot of people are very open-minded, you know, you kind of have the nuts and bolts folks, and then you have the just wild speculation folks and everything in between. Um, but I think whatever comes out, it's a step forward. It's moving us in the right direction. Uh, the, there will be bickering, squabbling. I was right, you were wrong, all that stuff. You see it now um, with everything happening, even leading up to this release. So, yeah, I think I think if we step back and look at it, especially historically in the context of 70, 80 years of just debunking and misinformation and stigmatizing humiliating people who've had experiences who have tried to talk about this we've we've really come a long way and a lot of that's just in the last few years so i think whatever happens this month it's going to be progress yeah no i agree with that like i said i i i, I want to see what what we do have in terms of data and things that are kind of behind the uh, veil if you will but at yeah. the same time it's like some of it seems a little forced and it 
I guess maybe that actually comes from like the people, like all the new podcasts and all the new content creators and all this new stuff. There's like a whole new market where you have people just like pumping stuff out there and trying right. to uh, make a little bit of money from this too. And I'm not saying that necessarily they even have bad intentions, but it's just, it's a new, it's the cool new thing, you know? So there's going to be a lot of people jumping on that bandwagon. Yeah. So that's great. We need um, that. We well, need it to be a thing. And if it's a cool thing, even better. <laughs> right. Well, and, and I think that what I was going to say though, too, is that, um, like I said, I just hope that if nothing does come out of this, that we can still kind of do what we've been doing, which is pushing forward and trying to figure out yeah. what really is going on, you know? Cause I think that that's the main question still is like, even though we've got some, you know, radar stuff, some video, some mm-hmm. not so clear pictures and different things, it's still one of those things where what is this, what's going on kind of a thing. Yeah. So. But to, to even get to that point, we have to say this is real. And that's what's been good about the last year, uh, really since last April when the Pentagon confirmed the FLIR, Gimbal, and GoFast videos. Now this is real. You can't argue with that. The mm. Department of Defense said it's real. Are you going to call them liars? I mean, right. they've lied about a lot of bombings of less developed countries and whatnot. But when it comes to ufos and uaps it's they're they're the end all the the be all and end all of this the buck stops there with the people that actually have the videos and uh command the pilots who have captured these so just that as a starting point alone is huge Mm -hmm. and the conversation for me as i talked to other people changed considerably last april when i could say look the pentagon just confirmed these they're real and then boom, now you're having a conversation. What are they? That's the next question. Who are they? What are they? Where or when are they from? And and we can't have that conversation until we have that basic platform of them being real. And I, I think it's awesome that we're finally getting there. Why That's do you think so- it took so long for them to admit that they are real? I, they've had these videos for a few years now. Yeah, they've been floating around. Uh, I think I saw Tic Tacs from 2004, the gimbals from yeah, 2015. Yeah, the, the 2004 and five ones, but I think the video surfaced originally. I think David Fraber talked about it in his Lex Friedman interview where he said it was around 2008 was one of the first times he saw it, but it was just ignored. And then really it, it got moving with uh, it's a, a whole series of, you know, what was it the uh, Tom DeLong thing that he had? Yeah, to the stars academy. Yeah, to the stars. I, I feel like they really gave it a push and got it out there more, got it more attention. His unidentified show on the History Channel as well. Um, but that that really brought maybe the pressure, even, or maybe he was an agent in this disclosure process. Who knows? But it was leading up to this uh, acknowledgement by the Department of Defense that this is real, which kind of indicates that there was pressure, there was something building. Um, but yeah, it was it was fantastic to see, and and I think the conversation now shifts, and and we start to ask, what are they? You see that in all these um, these interviews, like I mentioned, the the weather person on the Today Show just the other day, they said, well, what do you think? You know, as they go into the weather segment, she said, I think they're from the future. Hmm. I think we developed the technology to travel back in time, and they're just us from the future. And I'm like, sweet, nice work. I agree with you completely. Um, but also that's where we're going now. Now they're real. What do you think they are? What do you think they are? What do you right. think they're now we're having that conversation, which we couldn't have had before. And it's fantastic to see. Yeah. 
And look, I mean, I, I didn't want to earlier, I was talking about speculation. Like, I don't want to poo-poo speculation because that's where some of the better ideas come from too. But I just, mm-hmm. when I say that, I mean, it's like some people take like more than a couple steps and it's like, oh, they're this, these beans from this planet. And, you know, I know this because this person told right. me, you know, it's just like, you know, you're playing games of telephone and this person told me this and that, you know, it's just, I don't, I've never seen that really work out, but I mean, who knows? Um, yeah. And at this point, everything's on the table. You know, like I said, I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't even see this model as being mutually exclusive with others, even the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I think it's actually the same as the interdimensional hypothesis, still with humans from a different timeline as opposed to a different um, point in our own time in the block universe. But um, it's it, it's going to be it's a complex phenomenon. There's no doubt about that. It's mysterious. It's weird. It's been happening in different ways, but also similar ways throughout very long periods of time, even prehistorically, you could argue. So, yeah, I think I think we should keep everything on the table. We should still be entertaining all legitimate theories and um, considering any idea in the context of what little evidence there is in this field of ufology. Mm. You know, that's a debate in itself, too, is like, should we just do away with ufology. Should this be taken more, uh, from a scientific standpoint, but then you run the risk of, well, if you look at the current, um, climate in academia and the way that, um, skeptics and, you know, different, uh, academics look at this, they're immediately trying to debunk it. They're not even really looking at it objectively, which that's right. not even really scientific in itself. No, it's but, not. Um, it's and you have your like, Mick, even Mick West's tone has changed. I don't know if you follow him on Twitter. It went from yeah. being just a skeptical, trying to you know show other possibilities. Now it's become more aggressive, and he's trying to get on these TV shows and put his theories out there too. So it's like, you know, the stakes are getting a little bit higher here. And you can, you know, as as where right, and that's I, the yeah. perfect example of of it being a real thing. Now he was always trying to say it's you know gas lights or birds or whatever. Yeah. Now his tone has to change because it's a real thing. Same thing with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye and all these naysayers who never would even bother to look at it in spite of the fact that Bill Nye has science in his name. And as scientists, this is what we're supposed yeah. to be doing. So is he even a scientist? Nye, I think he's Bill a science guy. guy. Yeah, he's an Bill engineer. Nye, <laughs> the unscience guy because he's not even doing his goddamn job. <laughs> but like Neil deGrasse Are you listening, Tyson. Bill? Too. Yeah, yeah. Come on, Bill. This isn't Star Talk, buddy. Okay. Yeah, you, buddy. Can it, you, where, where are you at, Bill? Yeah. Um, but no, like like with Neil deGrasse Tyson, too, his favorite thing is, well, they're unidentified. We don't know what they are. Well, right. yeah, no shit. We didn't know what <laughs> viruses were. We knew something was killing us. Right. We eventually, once we had the technology, we figured it out. So if we took that same mentality with everything, we would never know anything. Right. Like things start as being unknown and unidentified. And it's our freaking job as scientists to figure it out. And so, yeah, it, it's always pissed me off that they take that dismissive, holier than thou attitude. And and they're going to have to change their tone, too. I remember tweeting like two years ago, like at what point do Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson have to eat their hats? I, I think we're getting close to that point. Yeah. Because they can't deny the reality of this any longer. And for those of us who are trying to figure out what they are, that's the obvious next step is now that they're real, let's figure out what the hell they are. Yeah. Blows my mind. Pisses me off. Well, there was even when all that news came out, there was even some astrophysicists um, tweeting out things uh, like, oh, this is just uh, this or that. You know, it's 
these are the explanations. And uh, I just tweeted out, like, imagine being a scientist or an astrophysicist or a physicist and not at least being curious at what these things might be. Yeah. Like, isn't that why you got into science? Like, it just Absolutely. just doesn't make sense to me. Um, so back to your theory, though, kind of. So, like, you have, you know, your Sean Carroll's talking about the arrow of time and, uh, oh, time only moves in one direction, yada, yada, yada. Is your theory predicated on the idea of like almost like how simulation theory, we're eventually going to create a simulation that's indistinguishable, so therefore it must be correct kind of a thing in terms of like we're going to create technology that's so good in the future we'll be able to, you know, go back in time as opposed to just forward in time? Um, no, I mean, not really. I guess in a sense, in the context of the progression of our knowledge and our technology but but really there's two there's a lot of ways of looking at time but as far as the physics of time or how we can understand it as a real entity which it's also not it's considered an emergent phenomenon so almost every scientist every physicist especially will tell you that it seems to come from something else that we're looking at the effect and not the actual cause associated with time there's some deeper aspect to this phenomenon some argue that space is the same way uh sean carroll actually is one of those people who toys with that idea um but if we look at the the main theory of time in physics it's the block universe and within block time you have this supermassive four-dimensional um universe where everything that's ever happened exists at, in this block um, the past from the Big Bang to the very last bits of matter disappearing into a black hole or wherever uh, matter goes. And, and then within that, you can move around. You can visit the past, and you're not changing anything within this block universe because anything you did in that past already took place. Any effects, not changes, but effects, manifested themselves in the future before you even went back to do it in the first place. So there's a self-consistency that's inherent in the entire system. And earlier when I made reference to this interdimensional hypothesis, if we think about um, the universe less in the context of block time in the block universe, but more in the context of the, the, the quantum multiverse, um, there's the brain, the woven, the expanding, and then the quantum multiverse. And in this model, you've probably heard of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. If you go back in time, just even visiting the past creates quantum decoherence and you create these separate timelines. So if that's the case, we could have human-like beings, depending on when we visited or when the split took place, jumping through these different timelines and visiting us, again, from the future as still more advanced humans, but who underwent a different uh, past. They had a different history, so to speak. Um, still human, still bipedal. We still share common ancestry. We just had a divergence in our timeline at some point in the past. So that kind of structures the way you think about this time travel model in the book, because block time is the most dominant model among physicists. I stuck with that one. Drew heavily from the work of uh, Igor Dmitriev Novikov, the Novikov self-consistency principle, which also works within this uh, this realm of block time and the block universe, also known as landscape time. So really an understanding when they come from or where they come from or how they get into our particular time in the past or our timeline 
it depends on which one of those models you're you're adhering to. So I I mostly approached it from one, but it's going to be a while before we understand time well enough to know which one is is the most accurate. Do you think that uh, you know one of the main issues is we don't really understand gravity fully and that we know gravity the more gravity there is the more time slows down. So obviously this has yeah. a massive effect on the way we perceive time. So do you think that that's one of the major issues here? I do. Yeah. And and that's something that seems to come up over and over too is that until we have a, a theory of quantum gravity, until we can meld Einstein's theory of general relativity with our understanding of quantum mechanics, we're we're not even going to not not just not be able to time travel but not understand how that even works, not understand uh time in a physical sense and that's probably an aspect of this emergence you know maybe there is some aspect of quantum mechanics where time is a byproduct of that or something that doesn't really exist in the way that we define it but we can manipulate it in different ways so yeah the fact that it's related to our speed relative to the speed of light um the fact that it's relative to light at all indicates that light has something to do with time and our perception of time as well and then, yeah, in the context of gravity, uh, with general relativity, all of those things suggest that once we figure out gravity, once we figure out the relationship between light and quantum mechanics, uh, gravity and, and, and the way in which uh, the space-time can bend, I think it won't be long before we're actually time-traveling, to be honest. And that's one of the speculations, too, is that some of these craft are manipulating gravity, and that's how they're able to come and go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's very clear they're manipulating the force of gravity, and most likely with the electromagnetic force, since it's 10 to the 40 times stronger than the force of gravity. So once they got that dialed in, it wouldn't be hard to make an anti-gravity propulsion system. And there's very good indications that the electromagnetic force is utilized in these craft. Um, but then, yeah, it also seems like it would give you the ability to manipulate time. If you're manipulating gravity, and, and there's a number of uh, close encounters that indicate that they are manipulating time, uh, both within and within the proximity of the craft. I mentioned a number of those in uh, a new book I'm working on, but even just their ability to fly and withstand these tremendous G-forces that we see as outside observers, uh, that would crush any living organism on the inside of this crash, where they instantly accelerate. They go, I think that tic-tac did like 30,000 feet in a couple seconds. That would smash anything inside, mm. but... If they're manipulating space-time, it could be a very slow acceleration to them, where it's like pushing the gas pedal in your car. But our perception is outside observers in a different reference frame. It would seem that they just instantly zipped across the sky or did this you know, rapid acceleration up or down to or from wherever it was they were previously. But in the context of these different reference frames, if they're manipulating space-time in and around those craft, it would also help explain why they just disappear and reappear right do you something, think i was gonna say do you think that you know yours obviously is about time your book's about time traveling and evolving to become this gray archetype do you think yeah. you, we could ever evolve to withstand that and if not do you think that maybe there's a little bit more um juice put into the von neumann probe uh, hypothesis 
I'm not familiar with that one. Von Neumann probe is just that they're self-replicating probes. Like we'll get so good at creating AI and technology that will, you know, how we send satellites and everything. We're going to send self a robot, right? We're going to send self-replicating, let's say Tic Tacs that can self-replicate yeah. and have a, their AI base and there's not actually a person in there kind of a thing. Yeah, no, I definitely think a lot of them that we see are drones or artificial intelligence or at least operated with AI, whether they be from a different planet or a different point in time. Um, I, I would even argue that the Tic Tac craft, they don't really fit that that typical triangular or metallic disc shape. They they are most likely drones. Um, but it's not just those that are seen doing this. If it was only those and then the disc-shaped craft just kind of moved around slowly in the sky, that'd be one thing. But they're seen doing the exact same thing with beans inside. In many instances where they're not just seen from the outside, but many abductees who are riding along with them describe no G-forces whatsoever. Like Terry Lovelace, for instance. Uh, he rode up in this uh, massive triangular craft. He could see the earth descending below his feet away from him at a tremendous speed, but felt absolutely no G-forces at all. So that indicates that some aspect of their propulsion system uh, allows them to counter, and probably as, as part of the machine itself, I doubt they're pushing buttons to like minimize right. the G-force. It's probably built into that acceleration that whatever it is that's manipulating space-time in and around that craft is accounting for that speed and allowing them to feel as if it's... Uh, a slow acceleration and he, he could see it wasn't he could see it was moving very very fast and from the outside of that ship it probably would have seemed very fast as well but he didn't feel anything and and yeah one of the only ways i think you could do that is by manipulating space-time itself yeah the other part of that that i was going to ask too since you're a biological anthropologist do you think that we might become we might combine with technology at some point too so that might take out the whole you know, like maybe our consciousness is just programmed into these things or some aspect of like that. So you don't even really need to account for this mysterious force that's keeping everybody's parts together within these crafts. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a possibility. We we already have the ability to give ourselves prosthetics in, in many different ways, functional prosthetics, even beyond legs and arms. Um, we're starting to allow deaf people to hear and blind people to see. So, yeah, there's there's always that possibility that there could be some melding of our technology and our biological form. Um, if it's I, up I to think Elon, right? On the table. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, that's true. There's probably the good money in itself. that. There was a great Futurama episode where Hermes <laughs> uh, got held up at knife point in Central Park and made himself into this massive robot that could defend himself and his yeah. family. I mean, there's, there's, there's probably demand for that. You know, you've got a lot of people that not, not just ones who've lost a limb or lost their sight, but just want something. There could be a designer uh, prosthetic market that, that may move us in that direction. But I, I don't think that is a, a big aspect of this phenomenon. Um, I, I certainly think there are examples like uh, Calvin Parker, um described robots basically that abducted him and uh charles hickson in that pascagoula incident they were uh, they had little antenna they floated they're metallic he, he referred to them as robots sort of abduction droids if you will so 
it, he saw people on the ship who he described as human, not just greys, but actual humans on the ship. So it almost seems in that particular case they used um, they used droids, they used robots, they used artificial intelligence, at least in that abduction process. Mm. Yeah, Futurama is awesome. I love Futurama. It was actually, I think it's of it is more Rick and Morty before Rick and Morty. Yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of good shows. Um, God, was it Phineas and Ferb? Did a lot of science and engineering stuff. Um, it, it's, it's been fun having kids, like going back and revisiting a lot of these or getting introduced to shows I never watched. Um, Have you ever but, seen the movie Primer? Uh-uh. You should check that out. It's a low budget, but it's like a time travel, and it's very... They don't dumb it down like the talk, but nice. a, yeah, check that out if you ever get a chance. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I will do. I'm always looking for good time travel content. Who directed like that? Get, it's uh, Seth, or uh, what's his name? Shane Carruth. He's only made two movies, and they're very strange and obscure, but he made this jam. movie for like $5,000. He, he wrote it, directed it, starred in it, did the music for it, and it's like, oh, he's wow. like, a, he's an engineer, so... He did. He just didn't dumb down like when they're talking about. So most of the stuff goes over my head. You'd probably understand some of the other stuff, but uh, it's uh, it's pretty cool. And again, it's more of like a a realistic approach to the to the mm-hmm. whole time travel thing. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll check that out. I thought you were gonna say David Lynch because every movie you recommend is David Lynch. We know you don't <laughs> like that kind of stuff, bro. Um. Uh. So yeah. So I I do. I do think, though, that if we, we, I think we discussed this last time, if we were time traveling, you know, what would be the point of coming back? Is it to alter our future in some way that's been negatively affected, that they're able to see that that causal line? Is it, you know, like a field trip? Is it like, you know, they're coming back to like see, oh, this is what, you know, humans used to be, or this is what humans used to be like, almost like a history trip, you know, like what, yeah. where, where have you thought about that more? Like what, where do you, where do you stand on that now? Yeah. I mean, again, I think it comes down to whether you're looking at these visitors as coming from as interdimensional or extra tempestrial, as I call them, extra tempestrial being more of the block time model coming back into the past there's no way to change things in that respect like i said if you go to the past and do something the effects have already manifest themselves before you left so there's self-consistency inherent in the block universe but if you look at them more in the context of the many worlds interpretation here you have different timelines they could be coming back to create a new future they're not going to be a part of that the people from their future are in a different timeline so it has no effect on them Um, But if they stayed here and lived with us or could travel forward in this new timeline into that future, they could see the effects of that. So it really depends on on which model you look at or what you're using to approach that question. But regardless, I I think it is mostly research based. And I'll acknowledge my biases as an anthropologist in the context that I that's what I do. I study the past and especially as a paleoanthropologist who focuses on human evolutionary biology and evolutionary anatomy, um, but also someone who's worked at archaeological digs, a Neanderthal dig 125,000 years ago, uh, Australopithecus, Australopithecus Africanus dig at three and a half million years ago. I would love the opportunity to see what they were doing, what their lives were like, what we try to piece together, their life ways as we call them, 
from the fossils, from the tools, if tool technology existed then. Um, but just to be able to observe them and see and study them and, and pick them up, I would do the exact same things that are described in these abduction encounters if I had access to time travel technology, because you can get so much more information than you can from just studying fossilized teeth and bone. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. I also argue in the book that based on some past and current trends, they may struggle with reproduction in the future. Um, sperm counts have been decreasing in men in Western societies for the last 40 years. Uh, women are having a harder time getting pregnant even outside of that trend. People are choosing to have fewer offspring. So if we reach a point in the future where reproduction becomes difficult or impossible, which sounds crazy to say, but as a domesticated species who's taking control of our reproduction and has technology to continue it, which we're already doing, in vitro fertilization is growing tremendously. Cesarean sections didn't exist in our past. That's something we added to this uh, reproductive process. So, and, and their focus on gametes too, it seemed to indicate that. They're always taking sperm from men. Many women report having eggs taken from them, developing fetuses extracted from them. It indicates some focus on gametes and some focus on fertility, fecundity, and potentially problems that they're having. So I think it could be self-serving in many ways, or at least some aspect of it. I do believe there's a research component. I believe there's probably a tourism component, uh, field trips, as you said. Uh, But I also think that it's probably self-serving to some extent that they're collecting gametes from specific haplogroups who didn't uh, make it into the future and interjecting novel gene variants, so to speak. Are we the only species that you know of that self-domesticated? Because um, that just baffles me that we're so different than everything else. And we can domesticate animals, but yeah, how did question. we domesticate ourselves? And at what point did that happen? Yeah, it happened beginning during the Neolithic with agriculture. Um, like what, Gobekli Tepe, something around there? Yeah, actually, that's almost exactly when it happened. Gobekli Tepe predates agriculture just by a thousand years or so. And it's actually interesting to anthropologists, um, even beyond many of the already interesting things, because in most places we had people coming together to practice agriculture. They're becoming sedentary. They're settling down. And then society grows around that. Cities grow around that and temples and worship places of worship grow around that because you have these public works projects now that can develop because you have people that can contribute their labor. But with Gobekli Tepe, it was the opposite. You had people coming together for spiritual and religious reasons. And then within that area, partly because they were there more often and kind of settling down for these spiritual reasons, they developed agriculture there. So it's one of few places where it predates the development of agriculture, but it's still around that same time period, by eleven or 12,000 years ago. Um, and that's when the self-domestication process first started. And a lot of the, the reason for that is because we had selection for pro-social behaviors. Once we started to have to live in groups, we had to start getting along. So there's selection for, you know, you can't have everybody start in bar fights every night, everywhere you go. You're just, you're not going to hold your society together. And especially at this time when it's kind of fragile and different people, larger societies are coming together. It's not all family like it was when we were hunter-gatherers and, and tribal-level societies. So now you have to have people getting along. 
So that selection for pro-social behaviors sort of made us more docile and started this process toward self-domestication. But to your original question, I, I can't think of any other species that's kind of done it to themselves. Because um, I think those that scenario or something similar has to be in place before you would have that selection for pro-social characteristics. And, and there aren't really any other animals that live in these societies. Maybe dolphins, because they live in larger groups and come together in superpods from time to time. But um, yeah, you're right. I think we've done all the domesticating, at least up and to And we're bizarre, point. right? I mean, we're just so different. We can manipulate our environments, you know, in, in different ways. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, that's why we trend towards on the show a little more of the metaphysics and metaphysical stuff because... I mean, just even that, what, you know, you're a scientist and even you, you know, you're thinking, well, that is weird, right? I mean, that's one of the anomalies of, of life in the universe, right? Yeah. And that aspect, what you just mentioned, where we're man- manipulating the environment, that's the main thing that separates us now, post-agricultural from pre-agricultural, is before we adapted to the environment. We would move to different environments if it changed. What we do with agriculture, which is huge, is that we change the environment to suit us. Hmm. Throughout the entirety of human history, we changed to suit the environment. But with agriculture, it's this massive shift where we change the environment to suit us. And it's a, a big part of why we became so successful, almost to the point that it could lead to our demise if those changes to the environment lead to catastrophes that we can't adapt to if global warming just gets out of control or whatever um waste nuclear explosions what who who knows but um yeah that was one of the biggest most important characteristics of that neolithic revolution yeah that's interesting i I definitely that's that's something i could talk about for an hour in itself is the whole domestication and early civilization and that kind of stuff. And that's that's what we talk about on the show a lot too. So maybe we'll get you back on in the future since you, that is your expertise and talk about that. But, uh, yeah. hundred episodes from now. (laughs) We should have it on on every 20. This is delightful. Uh, no, let's wrap it up here though. Cause I do want to get a Patreon in with you here. And I know we have like about 15 minutes left or so. So, um, I want to wrap it up here, but I want to thank you for your time. Do you have a, a title for your new book that you're working on or? Uh, yeah, the working title is The Extra Tempestrial Model. So just it's a deeper dive into this idea and kind of flips the last one on its head where I didn't really talk about UFO encounters or abductions very much. But mm-hmm. this one focuses more on that in the context of not just the extra tempestrial model, but interdimensional, extraterrestrial, ultra-terrestrial simulation hypothesis, just kind of looking at these uh, abduction encounters in the context of these different interpretations. Mm. love it well we look forward to that and hopefully you said maybe early next year sometime yeah uh if not december then probably uh uh early spring i would think okay well we'll look forward to that and you can check out his uh current book that's out identified flying objects i have the link down below super super good i highly recommend it everybody needs to check that out if you're into this topic and you haven't already um, and yeah, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, like I said, we'll get you back on and Maurice wants it in less than a hundred episodes. So, um, I'm going to come on tomorrow. <laughs> well, uh, we'll cut it down to 50. How yeah. About that? Every that's 50 bad, that'd episodes. be perfect. 
Uh, but yeah, thank you for your time. And uh, anybody that's interested, we are about to start a Patreon. So head on over to patreon.com slash podcast for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments, including the one we're about to do. Um, and there's a whole catalog on there of stuff. And one more time, head on over to indrasweb.org. This is the social media platform we created to connect open minds. If you're not familiar with the, uh, the analogy of Indra's net, it's an analogy for the universe that comes from, uh, the ancient Vedas, uh, the Rig Veda specifically. So go check that out. We're there's tons of people hypothesizing, theorizing, speculating. So head on over there. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much and everybody stay safe out there. We love you all and we will catch you next time. Peace.